We were here in Genesis not too long ago, um, through our study in Genesis, and uh, Lord willing, we'll be back in Genesis uh, after a few weeks. But uh, first of all, happy Father's Day again. Happy Father's Day. Um, love you guys. So thankful for you. Uh, love the men in our church. Love the fathers, the husbands. Um, we got some good ones. Uh, I want to encourage you today. It's good that it falls uh, in the middle of our series on the family. Y'all know I don't do a lot of holiday preaching. Um, but we're doing this family series, and I think it's appropriate that it lands right here on today. I uh, have heard it said before that uh, churches use Mother's Day to encourage women from the pulpit. And we use Father's Day to rebuke men from the pulpit. <laughs> um, but today's sermon isn't so much about mom or about dad, but about their union. Uh, we saw last week how important it was. Uh, for the household to be taught by God and, and built under the principles of God's Word. We want to develop households like that. In a typical household, you have all these different pronouns. You have mom, you have dad, you have son, you have daughter. Um, but you also have husband, and you also have wife. The husband and wife are not separate from the family experience. God gave marriage to be the beginning of, of a multiplying family. So when we talk about family, in, in a lot of sense, there is no beginning of family until there's marriage, right? Even if you're single, where did you come from, right? You came from some type of union. Um, God gave marriage to be the beginning. And so when we have men and women coming into the pastor's office with a muddled view on marriage, trying to find out God's will for some man who's not a Christian or some woman who's not a Christian trying to figure out who they're supposed to marry, we're also going to have a muddled view on the family. When we have a muddled view on marriage, we will also have a muddled view of the family. For example, cohabitation is deadly to the biblical family. It is. Divorce is deadly to the biblical family. Intermarrying with a person who is not a Christian can be deadly, or at least incredibly difficult for a biblical family. So this deserves our attention on Father's Day, among other days. So where do we go to get our perspective on marriage? We go to the Bible, right? We go to God's Word. We go to the one who created marriage. In this short time, um, I have ten principles that I want to bring out before you. Ten, I know, I saw a lot of faces uh, shine when I said that. Uh, these 10 principles were brought out in our marriage conference um, uh, almost a year ago now, I think. And um, I'm, I'm revisiting them in a little different, different way this morning. Um, there, there were a couple of you there. Steve and Rainey renewed their vows, which was awesome. Hope you guys made it out to that. We did not have a lot of Main Street people there. So shame on you. You're getting it anyway now. But uh, I'm glad you're here this morning to learn about marriage. So these are the ten um, principles that, uh, that I, I brought out during that marriage conference um, last year. But I also want to say before I get started, when I preach, I preach expositionally, right? What is expository preaching? It's going through verse by verse, letting the main idea of the text be the main idea of the sermon. That's not happening today. Okay? So don't go home and get on Google and give us a one-star review and tell us, you know, that, that we're this, this terrible church that doesn't preach the Bible anymore. You're, you're going to send an email to John MacArthur and tell him how terrible we are. Don't do that. Don't do that. 
we preach God's word every week. This is abnormal that we preach topically. Even when I try to preach, preach topically, I try to preach, you know, through a, a passage. But there's so much to say about marriage that that's just not going to happen today. Okay, so we're starting in Genesis. We'll be all over the place. Um, and the very first and most important thing to understand about marriage is this first principle is that it's God's idea. It's God's idea. It's not our idea. It's God's idea. We just read Genesis chapter 2. It's interesting that at the very beginning of the Bible, right, the second chapter, God is stating his claim on what we know to be as marriage. God put Adam to sleep. God took a rib from Adam. God fashioned that rib into a woman. God brought that woman to the man. God made them one flesh. God did all of it. It was all of God. Amen. You know, and Adam, when it was up to him, he couldn't find any of the animals that would do the trick, right? He needed something that only God could provide. We're tempted to believe sometimes that marriage is a social construct, something created by humans to help us get along better. But the Bible is very clear that marriage is God's idea, not man's. So when we participate in marriage, whether we are Christians or not, we are entering into something that God created, right? Why did God create? Well, he creates things for his own glory. And he creates things for the good of his most prized creation. Who is his most prized creation? You and me, right? So marriage then is created for God's glory and for the good of man. Now, we're not accustomed to thinking like this. We wake up in the mornings and... You know, we're thinking, how, how can I get my teeth, my, my teeth brushed before I get this coffee breath onto my spouse, right? Um, but we ought to wake up every morning thinking, I exist to give God glory with my marriage. I exist to portray to the world what God has created as good and glorious and wonderful and full of grace. I have not entered into a social construct created by man. I have entered into a covenant established by God and for the good of his people. So this is where we start. Because it provides for us all the intentionality and the purpose we will need when it comes to lifelong marriage. Marriage is God's idea, not ours. So then, it naturally follows, if marriage is God's idea, we didn't come up with it, then who's in charge of marriage? Also God. Number two, God is in charge of marriage. Still from Genesis chapter 2. What does it mean for God to be creator of the heavens and the earth? It means he rules and he reigns with authority and power and majesty. It means that what he creates, he also gives provident kingship. There's not one molecule in all of existence in all the universe that God is not sovereignly ruling and reigning over. Right? Right? He is on his throne. He is master of all creation, Lord of all creation. God doesn't create things to watch them spin out of control. He creates them to sustain them. When he created woman from the rib of man, he had every intention to sustain that union that was about to take place. Birds have nests. Flowers have sunshine and rain. God provides for each of these. Will he not provide for all of his creation, including one of his most glorious and great gifts to man, which is the union of man and woman called marriage? He cares deeply about marriage, which is why in every wedding, don't we say before God and these witnesses? God joins people together. God sustains those unions. 
Do you know that God is in charge of your marriage if you are married? God is in charge of your marriage. We have a lot of responsibility in marriage. But when it comes to the one who made it, the maker of heaven and earth and all creation, it's God's. This adds two things to our perspective. First, it adds the, a, a little bit of comfort, right? Because if marriage was totally in our hands, we would screw it up fast, wouldn't we? We already have in a lot of ways. But it also adds a great deal of reverence. Because if it is in God's control, this holy, perfect, unchanging, Trinitarian God of all time and space and history, wow, that is a fearful thing. To think that God is in charge of my marriage. And that God doesn't make mistakes. He saves who he saves and he marries whom he marries. That means you're not with your spouse by accident. Amen? That is not an accident. From the very beginning of our union to the daily practices of our marriage, God is the one in charge. This is a comforting thought and it's a scary thought. But of course, if we get even more detailed, we would see that God is in charge not just of marriage... Um, and not just the big picture stuff, but all the little things that we go through in our marriage as well. And one of those is the fact that God made us male and female. Male and female. Number three, marriage is between one man and one woman. We see in Matthew chapter 19, you can flip there, the words are on the screen. Jesus is talking with the Pharisees. He says, Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read? That he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. And said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Well, therefore God has joined together. Let not man separate. Now you're probably familiar with this this well-known interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees. Jesus loves to hijack conversations and turn things upside down. They want to know what he has to say about divorce. And he just doesn't give it to him, really, right? He, he says, have you not read? Right? Have you not read? It's not up to me. It was up to him. He is the Word made flesh. But he says, have you not read? Have you not read? From the very beginning, God created them male and female. He doesn't give them a direct answer. He does imply an answer for divorce. But the bigger point here that I'm trying to bring out is that Jesus points to Genesis chapter 2 for teaching on marriage. And marriage, by its very definition, is between one man and one woman. It's a big issue, right? And we don't need to spend a lot of time on it, but it's important that we bring it up when we're talking about marriage. We don't have permission to change the divine construct of marriage given to us in Scripture. We don't add, we don't take away. This was not a cultural thing. This was not a teaching motivated by true Jewish tradition. This was no other excuse that our culture gives for us today. This was God's good and gracious design. That means then that it's clearly against God's good and gracious design for man to be with man or for woman to be with woman. This is not hate speech. Romans 1 tells us that this is contrary to nature. It is a dishonorable passion that will cause those who practice it to receive the due penalty of God's wrath. So here in Pride Month, what are we to do? We are saying that this is a passion of the flesh that will destroy the biblical family. And it needs to be put to death like every other sin. So if you're a woman, rejoice in your womanhood. 
Rejoice that God made you a woman. God has uniquely made you who you are. You may not feel well equipped to be a woman some days, but you are. And God did not make a mistake. You are just the way God wanted you to be. And if you're a man, rejoice that you are a man. God did not make a mistake that you are a man. He made you male. And he loves that you're male. If God has called you to marriage as a man or a woman, he will help you fulfill that God-given role. But before we go any further about these roles, there's something we need to understand about marriage, and that's number four, that it is a perpetual covenant. A perpetual covenant. Mark 10 says, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. That's what we read at all our ceremonies, isn't it? And I've chosen those words carefully, a perpetual covenant. A covenant is something we only know about because of God, right? More than a promise, more than a contract, more than a commitment. It is a covenant, an unconditional relationship founded by both word and deed that can under no circumstances be broken. If one side fails to keep the covenant, too bad. It's unconditional. God says, I will be your God. You will be my people, right? Underline that every time you see it in the Old Testament. I will be your God, you will be my people. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, they failed him, the covenant remained. He said, I will be your God and you will be my people. God keeps that covenant. But even though the Old Testament was tied up in the law of Moses, that law was given to us as a mirror to show us our sin. God came to earth in the man Jesus to make a new covenant that would no longer be tied up in the law, but to offer even more grace and unconditional love. This covenant would be tied up in the gospel. This is a new covenant that we are now under. Christ bore our sin on the tree, died the death we deserved, rose again on the third day to secure a relationship between us and God forever, no matter how badly we fail him. God has initiated a covenant with you, with me, with us. And now we make covenants with one another, don't we? Because God taught us how to do that. What are those covenants we make? We make the covenant of church membership. It says, I'm committed to you no matter what. We are a part of the same body and we're not going to fracture the body, right? We make covenants through baptism. We make covenants through marriage with rings on our fingers. And we think about the word perpetual. What God has joined together, let no man separate. God's covenant doesn't stop. And therefore, neither should our marriages. God's covenant doesn't stop. And therefore, neither should our marriages. When we take on the ministry of marriage, we take it on with no back door. No prenup. No just in case. Our one flesh covenant must go on and on and on through offense, through failure, and through sin. We need to know ahead of time that our spouse will fail us, and that's not a reason to walk away. We, we sign up knowing full well that we will be sinned against pretty much every day. And listen, I think there may be some occasions for biblical divorce. We can talk about that another time. I'm not trying to throw stones or make anybody feel guilty if you've been divorced. Divorce is hard. Something no human should ever have to go through. It's not the way God designed things. It will wreak havoc on a person. And it will certainly wreak havoc on the family. Which is why God designed marriage to be perpetual. It means going on and on and on and on and on with no end in sight. 
So if you're married, close the back door. Forgive each other. Do whatever it takes to stay together. Number five, the roles. Christian marriage practices complementary roles. I thought about just expositing Ephesians 5. Maybe I still will, but not today. Ephesians 5, 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. It's very tempting for us today to just dismiss this whole teaching on the complementary roles between man and woman in a marriage. We say, why can't we just be co-partners, right? Why can't we just go at this thing like Jack and Diane, right? You and me to the end. We're on the same page. No rules, just love. And the only problem with that is the Bible. The Bible tells us how to be a wife. The Bible tells us how to be a husband. Now, the Bible does teach total equality between the sexes, male and female, and equality within the marriage, husband and wife. But this isn't a talk on inequality. This is a talk on God-ordained roles. We are equal with different complementary responsibilities. The Bible says, wives, submit to your husbands. How? As to the Lord. We don't like the word submission, right? We, we wince at that word. But I, I always go to Ephesians 5, and I point to the verse right before this, which you can't see. Um, Paul is talking about the whole church submitting to each other. Right? So if you ain't married and you're not a wife, you should already be submitting to people. If you're a church member, we all submit to one another as to the Lord. And so now women submit to their husbands as to the Lord. Why? Because we submit to one another and Christ was himself submissive to the Father. And in order for God's good and gracious gift to to reflect his glory even further, he built in these complementary roles of submission for the wives. It's not a passive, careless uninterested, master-slave type relationship. It is an active, supportive helpmate that draws out the leadership in her husband. She is active in the daily processes of the family. She knows the decisions that are being made. She seeks her husband's guidance and leadership to initiate good for their home. And all the while, the wives are trusting not solely in their husbands, but trusting in the Lord who gave them their husbands. Right? God gave you your husband as a gift. And that's how you're to interact with them. Um, Husbands are to be the head and are to love their wives. That command would have been much harder, I think, for the first century Christians. We winced at submission. They would have winced at husbands being sacrificially loving towards their wives. The husband is described as gentle, gracious, A servant leader who leads through love. He is selfless. He seeks to lead with the good of his wife in mind. How did Christ love the church? He loved the church so much that he gave himself for the church. So the husband loves the wife in the same selfless manner. We'll talk about that more point number nine. But the point here is that in marriage, there are complementary roles that cannot be ignored. And the more that we embrace these things at home, the more our family will be blessed by God's good and gracious design.
But when we start to see there are roles and that things are kind of complicated at home, we realize it isn't for everybody. Marriage isn't for everyone. Number six, marriage is a ministry. Marriage is a ministry. Following the same text we just referenced there, we see marriage is not for the faint of heart. Marriage is hard work. Marriage is a calling, you might say. I love the word ministry. In the Greek, it, it refers to the word for deacon, diakonos. In a generic sense, it refers to a spirit-empowered service guided by faith. Ministry requires laying down your preferences for the good of another and for the glory of God. Marriage requires ministry. I'm convinced that most households don't see marriage this way. It's just a fun thing you get to try out when you get old enough, right? But it appears to me that it's a voluntary effort empowered by the Holy Spirit to die to yourself and sacrifice your entire being to the good of another human being until you die. That's not a joke. That's not what kind of bubblegum you're going to chew at recess today. That's a big deal. I told my cousin about this sermon and asked him, you know, you have any input on, on marriage for me? And he said, well, if you want your marriage to go well, here's what you need to do. You need to do the dishes and you need to clean the house without ever being asked. Pretty good, right? Sounds personal experience, doesn't it? Um, but in truth, if those lingering responsibilities, the, the lack of romance and initiation, the forfeit of your God-given roles... The day in and day out sacrifices that you refuse to make, those are the things that will disqualify you for the ministry of marriage. We love to talk about disqualifying people in ministry. But in reality, all of us, one degree or another, have been disqualified for marriage at some point. But that's what grace is for. And that's why marriage is a covenant and not a contract. We need to wake up every day with an attitude adjustment, remembering that we have vowed to spend the rest of our lives ministering to this one soul that God has given us. That one soul has no other husband but you. That one soul has no other wife but you. That's, that's huge. It's all on you to love them, to serve them, to minister to them. And if we don't do it, they simply won't be ministered to. No one else can be their wife. No one else can be their husband. If you're married, you are in ministry. But if you're not married, you should know, number seven, number seven, that marriage is not required of Christians. Marriage is not required of Christians. First Corinthians 7, Paul teaches on marriage. He says, now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Paul wasn't married. I think he was pretty good at being a Christian. He was all right, right? He wasn't married. Um, I want to remind you that marriage is not a requirement to be a good Christian. We sometimes marginalize single people in the church like something is wrong with them. Are you not dating? Are you not pursuing marriage? Are you okay? Do you need to go to the doctor? Right? There's nothing wrong with singleness. It's commanded uh, or it's commended by God 
as a gift. It's a gift. Paul wishes that everyone was single. God gives different kinds of gifts to different people in the body. Marriage isn't better than singleness. Singleness isn't better than marriage. If you're here today and you're not married, God bless you. What a gift. God bless you. I don't know if he intends to give you the gift of marriage or for you to stay single. Either way, you are blessed with a gift from God. You know why? Because 1 Corinthians 7 says you can give the Lord a singular devotion to Him. You can love others without certain restraints that married people have. You can serve the church with more abandon and more freedom. Your identity isn't ultimately in your marriage or your singleness or any relationship status that you put on Facebook, right? Your ultimate identity is in Christ, that He is yours and you are His. What was Paul's identity as a single person? For to me... To live is Christ. To die is gain. This is the identity of us all. Number eight. Marriage takes more than love. Marriage takes more than love. 1 Peter 3. That's what the Apostle Peter has to say on the subject. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, which, uh, with, sorry, the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Um, Whenever I'm privileged to do marriage counseling, this is one of the first passages of scripture I go to. How many of you ladies were made to memorize this verse growing up, right? About the adorning of yourself and what you're supposed to wear or not wear uh, as a teenager. Um, And uh, it's not going to be Isla's first verse, (laughs) I promise. Um, Because it's not as much about modesty as it is about marriage. It's about marriage, right? Um, There's a lot of controversial stuff in here that we could talk about another time. But what I want to point out to you in 1 Peter 3 is all the adjectives that God uses to describe this union and how they should act towards one another. Let me just point them out to you. Subject. Respectful. Gentle. Understanding. Honor. And grace. And I bring up all these words to point out that marriage takes more than love. Marriage takes more than love. We know about faith, hope, and love, and love's the greatest, no doubt about it. But what about faith and hope, right? If we deduce marriage down to two people who fell in love, we lose everything we've read so far in God's Word. One of my favorite musicians, the Avett Brothers, write some uh, unusual song lyrics. Uh, They sing a song called Roses and Sacrifice. They say, words won't suffice. Roses and sacrifice for you, my darling. Don't get me wrong. I've loved you long enough to tell. You're not slowing down, waiting for anyone anymore. You know just what you want. Roses and sacrifice. That's a cynical love song. I don't recommend it for any theological purposes. But... It does point out one thing, and that is that marriage takes more 
than a bouquet of roses on Valentine's Day. It takes sacrifice. Right? You were created for more. Your spouse was created for more. Peter is writing with the instruction of what to do if your spouse won't listen to the word of God. If your spouse is an unbeliever, do you think a bouquet of roses is going to win them to Jesus? It might help. It shouldn't be the only thing you're doing, right? None of us, by sheer will, of course, can win anyone to Jesus. But it doesn't hurt to add some respect, some gentleness, some understanding, some honor, some grace in the marital union. And if you're not married yet, and the Lord is leading you towards marriage, be particular about those fruits. Look for them in your spouse. Because roses won't last. I remember going home to tell my parents that there was a girl that I had met in college. My first, first day of school, I had met her. I didn't tell them about her for a few weeks. But my mom tells a story that I came home just saying, Mom, there's this girl, and she's just so nice. She's just like the nicest person I've ever met. Is, like, are people this nice? This is so, she was just the nicest person. And I kept saying the word nice. I couldn't believe how nice she was. My mom thought that was so funny. But what I was falling in love with was not just her beauty, but her fruit. She is exemplifying faithfulness, gentleness. Love, patience, kindness, goodness, respect. She was nice. (laughs) She was kind. And that's the fruit that we both want to produce in each other throughout our lifelong marriages. And Jesus will help us do that because marriage is indeed a proclamation of Jesus' gospel. Number nine, marriage proclaims the gospel. Back to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. It says, Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that he might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, quoting Genesis, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The Lord loves to give us pictures of the climax of all history and redemption and, and the world as we know it. And that climax is the gospel of Jesus, the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's given us the Lord's Supper to proclaim his death until he comes, so that when we take the bread and the cup, everybody in the whole body gets to literally see the gospel taking place, right? The Lord's given us baptism as an ordinance. When we put the person under the water and bring them up out of the water, death to newness of life, we picture Jesus' die, dying and being raised from the dead, right? This is what takes place in, in every salvation of all of you that are, that are Christians here today. And the Lord has also given us, not as an ordinance, but as a good gift, the gift of marriage to see the death and resurrection of Jesus on display. When a Christian husband loves his wife, it shows the world what Jesus did for the church. And when a Christian uh, uh, husband lays down his life for her, 
and washes her with the word and adorns her in righteousness and love and purity and nourishes her and cherishes her, the world sees Jesus' love for sinners. Living together in perfect harmony with the husband leading the way. This exemplifies the gospel. The wife is simultaneously wholly surrendering to the love of her husband, seeing his sacrifice and rising with him into the bliss of holy matrimony and redemptive love, responding as only one could, as if you saw Jesus on the cross, with love and adoration for this great, dutiful sacrifice. This is the gospel. We got to see this on display when Alicia and Brian got married right here on the stage, right? On a Sunday morning. It was awesome. We, we get to see that take place every wedding we go to. And isn't this really the theme of the whole Bible? Have you ever read Hosea? Called to purchase Gomer, redeem her as a wife? Have you ever read Song of Solomon? The groom and the bride dwelling together in intimate love like Christ and his people dwell together in love? Have you ever read Revelation? The return of Jesus coming as a bridegroom for his bride? And isn't it fitting that at the very beginning of the Bible, God would create marriage almost as a foreshadowing of the whole book and all of redemptive history. God coming back to woo sinners and be married to us. Your marriage will never be strong without Christ. Your marriage will never be faithful without Jesus. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. No man can come to the Father but, but through Him. God saw us in our helpless estate, rebels to His will, lusting after other gods, worshiping ourselves, mouths full of deceit. And He wanted us. The greatest proposal of all mankind is that God became a man and dwelt among us. He didn't get on one knee, but we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father when He was nailed to a tree of wood to pay the penalty for our sin. The full weight of God's wrath was placed on Him for the high treason we committed against a holy God. And His great marriage gift that He gave was His resurrection from the dead when He rose on the third day, wooing us to Him that we might have life amidst His death. This is not just the answer to man's dilemma of sin and separation from God, which it is that, but it is also the only hope for our marriages. If you're not in Christ, come to Christ today. If your marriage is suffering, it may be that there is a disparagement of spirituality and devotion to Christ in your marriage. Are you converted? Is your heart born again? Have you been changed? Are you a new creation? Come to Jesus, repent, believe in Him, and watch your marriage come to life as from the dead. Come today. Come today. And that leads me to my last point. Marriage is hard, but worth it. Marriage is hard, but worth it. Back to 1 Corinthians 7, verse 28. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that, Paul says. I want you to be free from anxieties. 
The unmarried man, skipping a few verses, the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. And Paul gives a fair warning. If you're married or you're pursuing marriage, he says you will have worldly troubles. Not might, not there's a good chance, but you will have worldly troubles if you are married. As wonderful as marriage is, anybody here who's been married longer than the honeymoon, or maybe even into the honeymoon, finds out rather quickly that it's hard. It's hard. Because you're two different people becoming one person. It can be a huge source of anxiety, Paul says. Pleasing our spouse worries us. And if we're not careful, it can worry us to despair. Our interests are divided. We want to love our spouses. We also want to please the Lord. We want to love uh, our spouses. We, we also need to serve the church. We want to love our spouses, but we have to keep up with other relationships. We want to love our spouses, but there's a pandemic going on. And, you know, my uncle has this crazy mask theory, you know, and we're trying to deal with all this stuff. And 24-7, we're called to love our spouses through all of it. But the single person has a singular devotion they give themselves to the Lord more fully. And, and when we say, I do, in marriage, we are signing on to many troubles in the, in the years to come. But Paul doesn't say this to get, get us down. He, doesn't, he says, I, I say this not to lay a restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure undivided devotion to the Lord. Marriage is hard. It will create a unique temptation to anxiety. But if it is done well... And you know that marriage is God's idea and that God is in charge of marriage and you're doing your best to practice complementary roles through the Holy Spirit and you're ministering to your spouse like it's a real God-ordained calling and you're determined to keep that perpetual covenant you've made with the ring on your finger till death do you part and you're preaching the gospel with the very life that you're living together. Marriage is indeed devotion unto the Lord. An anxious marriage can turn into a marriage full of worship. Do you believe that? So don't give up. God put you together. God will keep you together. God will get his glory, and he will do it with your good in mind. Because at the end of the day, even though it will be hard, God was the one who said it first. It is not good that man should be alone. So here are a few pastoral appeals that I give to you at the end of this sermon. Number one, make your spouse your first priority in the family. Make your spouse your first priority in the family. If your marriage stinks, so will your parenting. If your marriage stinks, the whole house will reek. Make your marriage first. Let your kids see how much you love their mom. Let your kids see how much you love their dad. Let your kids see that you operate under a biblical worldview so they can see what to look for in marriage.
Number two, serve together in church with your spouse. Serve together in church with your spouse. You are one flesh, not two fleshes, one flesh. You know, Jack, our, our guest preacher, hit on this pretty good when he preached out of Acts. He said, bring him to church, man. If your spouse doesn't come to church with you, bring him to church. Bring him to church. I'll add to that, if they aren't a member of the church, pursue membership immediately. Like, what are you waiting on, man? Pursue membership immediately. Come to our work days together. Take the Lord's Supper together. Sing together. Pray together. It will slowly chip away at your one flesh union and develop a spiritual disdain in your marriage if you're not both active in the life of the church together. It will be harmful. You have to be on the same spiritual trajectory or your house will become divided. So serve together. Number three, talk about your marriage often. Talk about it a lot. We had that marriage conference, right? And I had some people tell me, well, do I really need to go? You know, I don't know that I really have any problems in my marriage. It's not about having problems. Marriage requires constant communication, right? You need to often ask your wife how she thinks you're doing as a biblical husband. You ever asked her that? And you need to ask your husband, how do you think I'm doing as a biblical wife? Have you ever done that? These conversations should not be reserved to the occasional sermon that you hear every two years on marriage. This is a a weekly thing that we are thinking about, evaluating around around the clock. Take your spouse out to Pie Safe, buy her some cheesecake, and bring a pen and notepad and say, what do you think? How are we doing? Right? Where are we weak? What do we need to improve on? Right? Am I holding up all the areas of our marriage and domain that I'm responsible for? Here's some ways that I think we could do better. What do you think about this? How are we spending our money? How are we worshiping together at home? What are our big goals? What needs to be tweaked? Number four, ask other mature married people for guidance. Ask other mature married people for guidance. Don't squander the great opportunity of the church. You have brothers and sisters across the pews who are married and who've been through it, who've gone to bed angry, who haven't. You know, forgiven one another who've harvested bitterness in their hearts against their spouse. We've been there. Discipleship is not just for the, 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 the vertical spiritual relationship between one believer and another believer, but for the horizontal, how to love people, how to, how to have a, a good godly marriage. So we need to help one another in marriage. You need godly men and women in your life you can call on, not just in the bad times, but also in the good times, who are going to ask you regularly, how's your marriage? How can I pray for your marriage? Why don't we talk about that often? How's it going at home? And singles, you need the same. You need people who you can call on, who are going to help you in your own unique challenges as a single person. And I'll I'll give you this last one. Finally, as your pastor, I urge you to give your marriage to God. Give your marriage to God. It's already His. It's not like you can give it away anyway. Give your marriage to God. Whatever your concerns are, wherever you are failing in your marriage, cling to the cross, rely 
only on His providence. The biblical roles may be difficult for you to accept. You might feel that things are too far gone to be saved. You might have already been using the D word at home. Don't give your marriage to the world. Consecrate it to God. Give your home to God. Give your talks in the kitchen to God. Give your marriage bed to God. Give your dining room table to God. Give every part of your marriage to the Lord for His glory. And just see what happens. Because marriage was God's idea first. Amen. 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 Let's pray. Thank you for listening to another message from the pulpit ministry of Main Street Baptist Church in Spindale, North Carolina. I hope that your soul has been edified as a result of hearing the Word of God preached and that God will continue to be glorified in your life as you worship Jesus. If you have any questions about the message you heard today, feel free to uh, check us out online and send an email. You can find us at www.mainstreetspindale.com or you can call us directly at 828-286-2291. Hope you have a wonderful day. God bless.